11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, open banking could provide a £1 billion boost to the UK economy, says research, while New York fights cybercrime, and in our favourite story of the week, 50 Cent says he never had any Bitcoin after tweeting that he did. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are here at the 11FS offices in WeWork in snowy Allgates. I'm Ross Gallagher, and this is my first time in the hot seat hosting the show. I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host Simon Taylor, fresh from his resounding victory in Fintech Faceoff, slapping down US aggression. For those that don't know, Capgemini, LinkedIn and 11FS did a webinar uh, in which uh, Europe won. Uh, we were representing Team Europe, as, as were a number of us. Um, so well done, Team Europe. And I'm feeling pretty good, feeling pretty good about life. In spite of the snow, um, it's all hot, hot, hot this week. In Lots spite of, of the snow, I'm loving the snow. Absolutely loving it. But enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. Joining us today, we have... All the way from Chicago, it's our U.S. colleague, Doug Bobenhaus. Doug, how are you doing? Huzzah. Oh, we're so pleased you're here. Friend of the show and Bud's very own, Nina Mahunty. Hello. Nina. Hello, hello. And star of After Dark and head of marketing and PR at Oak North, Valentina Christensen. Hi, Val. Hi. So, another new show, another open banking prediction. According to City AM, open banking could provide a £1 billion boost to the UK economy, and this is based on research by the Centre for Economics and Business Research and Trustpilot, as banks are forced to compete. The analysis suggests open banking will have a positive impact on UK GDP as additional funds become available for productive use in the wider economy, but the degree to which these economic benefits are realised is dependent on the readiness of consumers to consent to sharing their data. Does this sound realistic, guys? I mean, the money is dependent on customers sharing their data, which a lot of studies have suggested they may not be keen to do. Well, I like the fact that they've put out positive numbers. This is possibly the first positive data-driven news story I've seen on open banking. It's not people are going to steal your things. The and banks you're gonna are here for all of your data. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Nina, you do a little in open banking. What are your oh, thoughts on this? what? Does Bud do open banking? Why, yes, we do. We love the story. Um, I love the story. And that's exactly what we're trying to do at Bud is, is get these connected journeys and get the likes of Experian credit score on board so that we can have better product offerings and um, hopefully pump that money back into the UK economy and elsewhere. Pump that money. I like the sound of that. Yeah, pump that money. <laughs> I Do think it. we just found an episode title right there. <laughs> pump that money. But I think it does come back to the, the sort of the customers sharing their data point. I mean, there was that um, Accenture research in October last year, which said that about 69% of consumers um, wouldn't share their bank account information with third party providers. And that half said they would never um, use open banking. Now, I know a lot of people kind of say, I'll never do that. And then they actually end up doing it. Um, so you have to turn to it with a pinch of salt. But I kind of, I always get a bit frustrated when I see these these um, initiatives that kind of happened again with, with um, the current account switching service. They always start on the retail side, which I totally get because that affects most people. But actually, you know, as we've seen, it's been a little bit of a damp squib, you know, 8% of people have switched. And I wonder whether if you had actually implemented open banking on business first, whether you would have seen slightly different oh, stats. Could you imagine with um, making tax digital and APIs and open banking and invoicing and all of the challenges a small business has, uh, then, then you could have probably got a lot more mileage and, and gotten people who are also retail customers themselves and quite, quite used to doing that. Um, I want to get an international perspective, though. Doug, you're, yeah. you're looking at this from fresh eyes. You're seeing all of this open banking noise coming through our podcast every week. And it, yeah. what are your thoughts on it? 
Oh, we don't have any such thing. Uh, <laughs> but but I can tell you that the the closest analog is is the rewards business in in the U.S. Basically, if you pay somebody you know one percent cash back, they're willing to sign up and share their transaction data with anybody. Um, they don't Apparently really. Apparently, ways yeah. Americans are easy to buy. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I think America just you know as long as you're making a, a valid offer to somebody, they'll they'll give it up. Wow. I mean, that feels completely different to here, right? I mean. You know, I think here there there is going to be a value exchange, and I think that's going to define the tipping point ultimately. But it's going to be it's more about functionality. Yeah, or, or you know, it, it is something about like you know, all right, how can you save me money? So I guess this is a good example of if you're going to make a more accurate credit risk profile, and then you're going to reduce my the interest that I have to pay. Um, that's a good thing, and that might get me engaged. Val- yeah, I mean, I think well, is it comes back to the kind of the customer awareness because. You know, you're not going to go out and try and find someone to give you advice on this necessarily. You're going to rely on reading the news and maybe um, going onto websites like, you know, Money Advice Service or Money Saving Expert or something like that. Versus if it was a business, you'd see probably the scaremongering wouldn't have had as much of an impact because people would have been being advised by accountants or advisors. Uh, and, and I think those um, sort of, uh, you say, price comparison websites, right? The, I'm going to go buy a new financial services product and this is my window into buying something something new, I want to get a loan, mortgage savings or whatever. That's where somebody fundamentally, this beginning of their journey, they're discovering the financial product there. That's an interesting window into aggregating banking, connecting banking up, connecting that experience. And especially people discover a lot of mortgages, people move their mortgages every couple of years. And there's a stat here that where CEBR found that for every 1% reduction in the credit spread, technical term, on mortgages, leads to a £153 million increase in uh, gross domestic product. So with open banking assumed to result in a 7% reduction in today's spread, it could lead to $1.06 billion in additional GDP. Open banking can make a difference. I like that somebody's putting numbers behind this and goes back to that point that Valentina made about the Accenture report. When Accenture were asking consumers, how were they asking the question? Because how you ask the question and who was the report for and and who benefits from the status quo versus who benefits from the status quo changing? I think we need to think about that, Ross. Agreed. But I think actually, you know, I agree with your point, Simon, that the numbers are important. I think ultimately they're largely academic. I think um, going back to Val's point, you know, ultimately, um, all of this is dependent on people sharing their data. And, you know, we're just not 100% sure that people are comfortable doing that yet. At least, I think, until we hit that tipping point with the the, the better value exchange from a customer perspective. Um, okay, so from boosting the economy by $1 billion, um, our next story looks at a transformation worth $3 billion. Simon, I know we like this, this story, don't we? And I expect our, uh, our guests to have some really, really good, uh, good thoughts on this. Lloyd's are planning a major overhaul of their digital offering with a £3 billion investment plan. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. It's like a dick measuring contest. Who can spend the most money? It's just like it's just it's just absurd. I mean, three billion. You think about the kind of the basically doing the exact same thing. Monzo, Starling, Revolut, N26 have been able to build uh, an entire bank for a tenth of that price. I mean, or less. Um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be spending three billion, you could just buy all four. You could buy N26, Revolut, Monzo, Starling. You could buy all of them and still have money left over. So it just seems like an absurd amount of money. You said something smart before the show, Ross, that um, you should get credit for, which is they're not telling you what they're gonna do; they're telling you how much they're gonna spend, which I think is kind of weird PR, right? What an odd thing to say. Um, and and then what they do say is kind of high level. 
Yeah, it's super high level. So what they're saying is over three years, this is a three-year plan, they want to transform themselves into a digitized, simple, low-risk, customer-focused UK financial services provider. So it's a lot of words, but it doesn't really tell us a lot, right? Look, if they're going to spend that $3 billion and they're going to attack their core systems and just like migrate to a cloud-based server, awesome. Yep. Let's do that. I'm all about that life. But if they're just going to say, we're going to spend $3 billion and we're going to do a really nifty thing where we're going to show you um, your transactions a bit faster and we're going to show you an aggregated view of um, all of your accounts in one place. It's just stealing the features that they... they that already exist. And, it, and, and that's the thing. It, it, I've been talking a lot about cargo cults lately, which is you know kind of people copying what they think the thing is rather than the reality of the thing. So there's this, uh, there's this gap between, hey, we'll give you these few new features in an app for three billion and hey we'll give you something that feels like it's on your side helping you out as part of your daily life and that seems like such a, a small gap but actually it's it's a chasm well i think also there was a the thing here it was like oh we're going to spend money but then we're going to make money in the long term like we're investing in ourselves it's going to make us much more efficient um and you know, that's what they kind of the point about the cost income ratio came in which i think is probably the only positive thing about the story which is that they they want to get to the low 40s by 2020 and they're on 45.9 cost income ratio right now which for an incumbent bank is is you know, incredible pretty, yeah it's, it's pretty good and, and you've so, got to give them credit on that yeah. point right i mean for a, an incumbent bank with um an infrastructure that they've been working on they have customers that you know net promoter scores aren't bad and the uh kind of the digital features aren't bad it's 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 a good all-round offering it's you've got to say that that it's not bad but it's never going to benchmark near the top um in terms of uh, pulse is it i know uh, certainly not in pulse because obviously they're, they're going up against the the sort of fintech pro- providers that we've already mentioned actually quite interestingly and picking up on that point there was lots of discussion on the fintech insider news platform about lloyd's calling themselves the uk's number one digital bank in this release um you know honestly among the incumbents from my perspective i think they have got one of the standout digital offerings um but i think they're missing a beat here because this own this release only talks about cost income ratios and all that sort of spend stuff but it's not customer first. It's not talking about what they're going to do in terms of like and consumer, that's, improving and that's the, the mindset experience. piece. It's like, we're proud to be the least worst of the big banks. Right? <laughs> and it's like, great, well done. Here's a cookie. But like, let's be... Here's ju- a gherkin. <laughs> Here's a gherkin. Let's be customer driven and customer centric. And I think that's why, that's precisely why um, the regulators have a competition mandate from government is because we still have a cultural issue. And a lot of that cultural issue is driven by having legacy technology and processes and what i don't see here is a story how we're going to get away from the same old thinking same old vendors into a story that's actually no here's our plan because it's it's all a cost cutting story it's not a customer benefit story it's not a customer think journey no, story. It's, it's a shareholder benefit story it's like we're gonna we're gonna fire these thousands of people we're gonna spend this much on an app which will then help us to get this cost income ratio so that by 2020 your shares might be worth that little bit more but then you can't deny the results i mean they've still got a lot of customers they've still got quite happy customers so um the it's it's working whatever it is but i'd like to see more i'm going to give this one a c minus <laughs> yeah. and at least if nothing else this three billion pound announcement will get vendors excited yeah if not customers um great okay so from one huge payout on digital transformation to a slightly smaller one um this story was submitted to finn by nigel walsh hey nigel um so virgin money spends 38.3 million to build new digital banks. So not 
quite 3 billion, but they're aiming to broaden their appeal in the SME market and extend their offering into current accounts and saving accounts through the creation of a data-driven, customer-centric digital bank. There's that word again. Um, So they've announced that they're going to partner with 10X Future Technologies, um, which, of course, was established by former Barclays Chief Executive Anthony Jenkins. And their API brings together legacy systems in a single secure network. So, again, this is all about using data to offer customers better products any thoughts does anybody know if this is just the old northern rock business with a lick of paint on it or is there something more going on here because i'm seeing a lot of buzzwords but i really don't know like i don't know what's going on does anybody know I mean, I don't know if I know what's going on, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, this was actually, I mean, this this was kind of a shelved plan. So they were going to come to market. Um, they had announced it pre-referendum uh, vote. And then when it was Brexit, uh, they kind of came out and said, we're actually going to shelve this until we can see what, um, you know, what the, the, situa- the economic situation is going to look like. And then in November last year, they sort of said, OK, we're picking it up again we're going to go after the SME market um, with quite aggressive plans and they said they want to attract 5 billion of SME deposits within the next 5 years so that's you know about 10% of the market similar sort of figures to what they have on the retail side um, so yeah I mean I think that's it's good that it's positive that they're obviously now they've taken it off the shelf and they are looking to pursue it because we know that SME uh, banking is, is a big pain point um, it would be interesting to see you know when it actually comes to market and what it offers putting legacy systems together with data driven customer centric api buzzwordy buzzword buzzword that was great oh my god okay but wait 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 can i just point something out in like three different paragraphs so it goes the virgin money digital bank will be underpinned by next generation technology and architecture and then shortly after it follows the vendor's api brings legacy systems together so which one is it it's a data services layers and they're just building something on top of of legacy i mean it's they're they're putting lipstick on a pig every bank has been doing for the past 20 years lipstick on the pig it'll be a good looking pig i guess (laughs) it reminds me of like the l'oreal like shampoo ads it's like (laughs) next generation shiny hair technology i mean it's just the most (laughs) it's always like some and they try to pretend like a scientist stronger thicker healthier looking bank yeah (laughs) you're worth it exactly it's just all that because you're worth it maybe they're born with it maybe it's virgin money who knows (laughs) uh all i know is that um about a year ago i was at a certain social club in in new york city and um and i these little kids were running all around the the floor and i was like what are these little kids doing here and uh and then all of a sudden richard branson comes tearing by and almost falls into my lap and, and um and i thought well you know that was weird. Uh, if, if he if he fell into my lap, you know, perhaps thirty eight million dollars would also fall into my my lap, and I could build my own digital bank. And but uh, anything can happen. It Just didn't get yourself happen. to Necker Island, right? Uh-huh. Any any other uh, Richard Branson based anecdotes? <laughs> Well, not an anecdote, but actually I was, I did hear Anthony Thompson speak quite recently, and it links back to the whole kids in the bank slash cost income ratio points. Um, So he actually told me, so you know, in Metrobank, you have these um, coin counting machines where you put in your coins and then it kind of spits out a receipt and you go and get your money. Each of those machines costs £75,000. And they have to put two in each metro bank because in case they're like quite clunky and in case one breaks down, which means that as a baseline cost for every store, it's 150k investment, which is. Did you get the sense that this was the straw that broke the camel's back for Anthony Thompson? <laughs> well, I mean, I can see. You know, it, it makes sense why I guess his second venture would have been uh, with, would have been Atom Bank. 
Okay, awesome. So that Virgin Money proposition due to launch H2 2018 and from one airline brand taking on big banks to another. This story has been submitted to Finn by Ashley Q. Budget airline pioneer Stelios Hajiyuanu to take on big banks with easy money. Can I just take a moment? Well done. David, if you're listening, that's how you do it. <laughs> take that. Um, okay, great. So... Look, EasyJet um, are also getting into financial services. They're launching an ISA product in Britain. Um, mm, is this an easy move for EasyJet? What you do we see think? this all over the world, right? I mean, you've seen co-branding Doug in the US forever. Like, how many airlines have um, cards and uh, kind of like money brands? This, but like a savings account from a, from an airline? Like, what's the deal here? It it feels like a weak attempt. I mean, if you're going to go, go. I mean, you're, you're just a savings account. Are you saving up for your trip? Is that the deal? Yeah. So um, they are, they offer investors 4.05 um, APR, annual interest rate, compared to similar uh, offers in the market at 1.21%. But the returns are not guaranteed. So the difference going on underneath the surface here is actually this isn't just a regular old account based on the Bank of England's base rate. This is actually, or the central bank's base rate. Invested. This is invested yeah. so that it could go up or down. Well, People offer that in the market already. You can get that sort of thing. But it's interesting. Let's take a brand and let's take something that looks great on the price comparison websites and put the two together. You can sort of see what's happening. But like, is asterisk, it... Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like a lot a lot of small printed. But actually, from a competitive standpoint, it lines them up with the likes of Funding Circle, yeah. who actually offers 7% um, and is a lot more competitive. Well, so, I mean, Crown for Angels offers 12% or Capital Rhymes offers 10%. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, 4% isn't particularly ambitious. Um, I get it that maybe, you know, they, they're trying to be a bit more um, risk averse. But, you know, I think the, the point here was that in the article, it was actually quite misleading. It didn't really explain that it was an innovative finance ISA or a peer-to-peer lending ISA until the quote. So you kind of, it was comparing it on a like-for-like basis with other cash ISA products, which are like And that's going to get them in trouble. Yeah. Somebody called the advertising yeah. standards. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're good. I'm glad they did. Because otherwise, it, you know, it makes people like, I mean, we offer ISAs and it makes us look like we're offering pitiful returns, but actually ours is a guaranteed rate. That's the difference. Yes, exactly. Guaranteed rates are, are, are very rarely as, as, as affordable. But of course, like this is um, one of those brand challenger plays versus like an actual challenger play versus an incumbent versus a tech company. And you always think about those four corners of the market. What What is it like to use your brand to do something that anybody else could have done versus what was their opportunity here to work with a customer base who was interested in potentially having savings? Like you could have done something, you could have done a lot more here. Well, and... And what you mentioned earlier about EasyJet and it's the EasyJet CEO and I'm aware that the Easy brand is licensed out and whatever. But, you know, what you said, are they helping you save for a trip or something? I almost think that would be a better proposition because we do associate Easy and that brand with EasyJet and travel. And so if they had thought about their customer base and how many people are flying with EasyJet and maybe they do want to have maybe loans for their, their flight or whatever. Yeah, what, maybe if the, what if the interest actually came in, in the form of an accelerated points program? Right. Yeah. Like There are so many other ways to tackle this, and I felt like it was just like, well, we want to do a thing in finance. This is what we're going to do. Mm. I think exactly on that point is that 
it's kind of a bit like, I guess, maybe the Virgin Richard Branson back in the day. There's so many Virgin brands, like there was Virgin Oil and Virgin Cola and Virgin Weddings, all these Virgin brands that actually don't exist anymore because you just tried. Yeah, Virgin Weddings. I know, how ironic. But then you could just do it, you know, really? you could go around and, and you could, you know, it was a kind of like, let's just try everything and then see what sticks. And so I don't think that they really put a huge amount into it. I think they were like, let's do a product that's relatively easy, which is, is an ISA. And we won't, you know, we won't kind of go to market offering or, you know, saying that we're aiming for a particularly high rate compared to others because, uh, you know, we're not going to put that amount of thought into it. They just said, let's, we want to do something in money. So this might be something. Yeah, agreed. So moving away from UK airlines taking on banks to the other side of the Atlantic, where New York is quietly working to prevent a major cyber attack that could bring down the financial system. Sounds like a good thing to do. This story has been submitted to Finn by Bob McLean. Um, and I think this is a real issue in terms of there hasn't been any sort of coordinated effort against um, cyber attacks until now. It's almost been on a voluntary basis, Doug. That sounds scary. I mean, as you know, in the US, uh, we've just decided to open ourselves up to attacks over the <laughs> internet from, from anybody. Yeah. Um, so whether it's money or politics, it, it doesn't really seem to matter. We, we're not doing a very good job of this. <laughs> I, I like that the regulators are doing something, though, at least as a bit of a the systemic York, yeah. response. Yeah, at least the New York regulators are doing it. Um, I think that they recognize how important um, the markets are to the economy, you know, in the whole country. And uh, so what worries me, though, is so uh, speaking as an American, you know, we've got regulation in each state and then federal regulation, right? And so I'm going to nerd out for a bit here. We have the U.S. Cyber Command, which sits is a part of the U.S. Strategic Command. And um, it was only founded in 2009. And for some reason, they've not really done anything about I guess they're, they've got their hands tied with a few other miscellaneous projects going on right now. But do I'm they? curious. Well, I don't know. And why? so, like, why is it being led by a state and why is it not being federally led? That worries me a bit. I do applaud um, the governor for, for taking these steps because, obviously, you know, New York, big deal, Wall Street. We don't want that to get hit by a cyber attack, but it worries me that it's not going to be translated wider. And also, you know, they mentioned in the same article GDPR and how that applies to the entire EU. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously a huge amount of just like so much capital right there and so much information. But why is it that it's just going to be in New York? <laughs> well, I think that's exactly it. I think it shows the scale of the regulatory ambition in somewhere like Europe versus or the EU versus the US, because it's not exactly a, you know, that's that's over 25 different countries, right? I mean, it's, it's a, you know, that's, a, that's, I mean, it's not as big as the US, but that definitely shows it's a very ambitious uh, project. Um, and I think also was the difference here is that there wasn't a clear consequence in terms of non-compliance, whereas with GDPR, there is. A so, clear consequence, yeah. yeah. So um, the previous um, kind of New York financial industry was governed by voluntary frameworks, suggested best practices, but actually this was going to be mandatory and um, there's consequences for, for non-compliance. And I think the interesting thing is that they felt the need to do that. You'd think everybody's aware that cybersecurity is a massive issue, um, but the slowness and the, the kind of um, lack of uh, speed at which a lot of organizations have reacted to the threat, because you're not going to prevent all cybersecurity um, 
breaches ever, but really it becomes like, how do I detect that it's happened? How do I share information? And what are these sorts of things? And you can say it's a best practice, but it, it's almost sad that there had to be consequences for it. But to, to uh, Val's point, as uh, Valentina's point, that's absolutely what makes it work in Europe. So maybe this becomes, and, and given New York's position in, in uh, the US as a kind of financial center, maybe it starts to, to move through some other states. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're also in a in a very uh, anti-regulation uh, sort of stage of, of things right now in the U.S. and you know, and and you know, it, the, under the guise of you know, release the regulations and let us do you know all kinds of open things and and act quickly and, and run fast, but um, but without standards that everybody's following uh, and without a high bar set uh, for for actually behaving, um, uh, it leaves the door wide open. But it's interesting your point, uh, Simon, about you know it kind of New York obviously setting or sort of paving the way and and setting the example, and it has because Colorado and Vermont have now implemented uh, you know similar regulations. So hopefully you know you will start to see that uh, you know seep through and and more states will will pick it up. Um, but as you know as Nina said, if you just could implement something at the federal level and that applies to you know, numerous fintech regulations, and it and it, it says wait one of the headers says waiting until a catastrophe, so. It does, does it really need to go so far as everything is just but markets are is, down and now we realize. This is the thing for me. It feels reactionary. You, exactly. 20, 2016, hackers attacked companies in the financial services sector more than any other industry. And over 200 million financial records were breached that year a near thousand percent increase from 2015 i mean how much did the equifax hack have to do with that but still but it's but that's a sign of the times isn't it that's that's um systemic and risk yeah there were another another two million accounts announced announced today Wow, I mean, it's just it's just in time rather than just in case. Yeah, check your check your, <laughs> really check, your <laughs> check my accounts. Okay, great. So we now need to thank our sponsors. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money Twenty Twenty Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing FinTech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Okay, welcome back to the show. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. Before the break, we were discussing new cybersecurity regulations. Now we head to the unregulated crypto space, and I can see Simon Taylor twitching and getting excited. Um... Great. I don't so, know if I was twitching. Like you were physically convulsing. I was not physically convulsing. I did like a little hand movement that suggested, "Ooh." Well, you're about to get even more excited because I'm about to say the name Jack Dorsey, which I know. Oh my god, such a fintech crush on that guy. Okay, as much as as much as Simon loves Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey loves Bitcoin. Um, payments app Square launched support for Bitcoin in November and CEO Jack Dorsey has doubled down on the company's stance saying the company is not stopping and buying and selling Bitcoin and that they believe in it as a transformation technology. Simon Taylor. 
So what I think is interesting about this is uh, this is in a time when Square has actually started to make it as a consumer brand and as a data business. On the merchant side, they're doing really well in terms of managing data and driving revenue. But also, Doug, you were telling me that Square uh, is actually, what, second to Venmo or third after Zelle, Venmo, and then Square as, yeah. as the peer-to-peer apps? Yeah, the, the Square Cash is doing extremely well. It's It's been a very quiet climber, but... Um, but they're about to break out in kind of a big way. I think I think the Square Cash card is uh, is uh, something like half a billion in transactions now. Wow! So really significant growth in terms of their actual core business. It took them a while to get moving. Their IPO wasn't great, but actually they're ahead of what Wall Street's been expecting. And Jack Dorsey slowly but surely has kind of got this business there. So for that is the context and the foundation for for him then to say this about Bitcoin is really interesting. So. Uh, in 2009, to me, he, he sort of was the, the signal or the moment in which fintech became a thing when he decides to leave Twitter to go do a thing in financial services. Suddenly, tech and finance came together, and then a couple of years later, people started talking about fintech. I think that's why he headlines Money 2020, because he sits in that Venn diagram like nobody else can. He's tech cool, but doing stuff in finance and succeeding. And so what does this mean for the future of Bitcoin? Is it the creeping legitimization? I don't know, but that's an interesting signal. Also, I don't know if in his comments, when he said, you know, we believe that this is a transformational technology for the industry. I don't know if he was necessarily referring purely to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I think it was more specifically related to distributed ledger technology and blockchain, which we know a lot of a lot of uh, businesses are, are obviously looking at now as well. That's such a gray area and blurred line. Like, I think people make that as um, a binary. Oh, we love the technology, but not the currency. And it's like, well, yeah, but actually most of the distributed ledgers are tokenizing assets, right? So they, they look a bit like a cryptocurrency, sort of. All right, granted, not everybody in the world can see them. They're not anonymous and blah, blah, blah. But also some of the crypto stuff, well, they're not all Bitcoin. Sometimes there's, there's lots of them. So there's there's nuance missing from that. But, but I take your point. He might not just be talking about Bitcoin. When a headline writer says, hey, Bitcoin, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But I also think there's something interesting about when we saw Robinhood app add cryptocurrency to what they were doing, it meant that they were getting a rush of new users. Um, and I spoke to um, a number of folks in the UK who also offer cryptocurrencies, but other kind of investments products. People come for the Bitcoin, they stay for the savings. Come for the lunch, stay for the booze. I love it. But again, so this also, this also goes That sounds back. like Nina's Saturday right now. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, I've been called out. Mom, don't believe him. <laughs> but um, so it also goes back, Simon, to your point around creeping legitimacy. Everyone that takes this on, it just pushes that legitimacy a little bit further. I Except we did see um, both JP Morgan and now a bunch of small banks in the US call out cryptocurrencies as a potential risk to their business. I like, um, I like lobbying through compliance reports. I think that's an interesting way of trying to get what you want from regulators. So, and this has been this has been a thing for Square as well. So um, despite the positivity and, you know, around the kind of earnings with Square Cash, etc., um, you know, there were lots of kind of column inches in reaction to this around the risks, around Bitcoin. Um, but this sense that I get from, you know, what Jack Dorsey said, he said they want to learn as quickly as possible. They only began limited testing of Bitcoin trading on Square Cash in mid-November. I mean, it sounds like they want to move super quickly. Whoosh. Blockchain Insider is on iTunes now. Check it out, people. Check it out. Five-star rating. It's awesome. Okay, so from an adjusted share price to a growing profit margin, 
Um, this one concerns N26 in Germany and the fact that their growth is on track, quotation marks, and they're now making a profit from every customer. So this is interesting. Apparently, um, onboarding 2,000 customers per day. Oh, hold on. Did you say apparently? <laughs> this is this is going... So we do this every show. Moorgate. Uh, apparent, uh, I'm just getting you back. Uh, apparently. Uh, <laughs> better. Okay, Michael, can we use that one in the actual, in the actual cut? Can we also not edit this out? This yeah, is you, super fun. Listeners, uh, Ross just broke Petrit, assistant producer there, and that's absolutely one of the, my favorite things. N26 now claims that they are gaining 2,000 customers per day in Germany. Apparently, each customer is now profitable. Was that better or worse? <laughs> I feel like now, because we know it, apparently it's like... Right, Ross, I uh, just love this story um, because it's about unit economics. And we don't hear enough about unit economics. We hear a lot about customer growth. We hear a lot about like entering new markets. We don't hear about like unit economics. And sort of the the old thing about cost income ratios is at the aggregate business level across all of their products. And you sort of you have products that are loss leaders and then products that are profitable and you kind of balance each other out to become a universal bank. This is about every customer themselves being profitable because of lower costs of technology. And I still think that people see that as like, oh, great, so how do I outsource my technology? And it's like, no, you're not understanding it. It's not about outsourcing it these days. Digital is a small team sport, surely. Yeah, I think I mean I think the timing of it was also quite interesting because it came on the same day or I think the day after Revolut had announced that they had reached break even. And I mean if you saw the sort of very awkward exchange between um them two and Tom Blomfeld from Monzo on the, the TechCrunch disrupt stage in Berlin last year, um, you know, you can see that there's obviously some competition between them. I think Revolut then said that they you know, they're signing up between six and eight thousand customers a day. Um, what's interesting is obviously the N26 said they want to get from the 500 customers they have now um, to about 2 million as fast as they can or as fast as possible in quotations um, with a 2,000 per person, uh, 2, person um, uh, signing up per day. They'll, they'll get there in about two years time. So, um, you know, fingers crossed they get there a bit sooner. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Because when you take them in isolation, those numbers sound super impressive. But actually, when you frame them in the context of where they're trying to get to, I I love this. Um, I have a crush on N26. Um, in my broken it's German, just like Simon, and just like Simon has Dorsey. a crush on Jack Dorsey. In my broken German, ich bin eine Frau und, da, und das ist wunderbar. Das ist wunderbar. Um, they are just killing it, in my opinion. And I think we kind of, in our UK bubble, forget that they're kind of out there because they've not entered our market yet. Maybe they will soon. But um, we talk about Monzo and Starling and what they've been up to. But if you kind of take a look at what N26 has been doing on, say, The Pulse, you might see that they are also offering insurance now with Allianz. And they've got savings. And there's so much that they're offering. And they're quietly plugging away. And they're coming to America. And they're coming to America. And they've already gone to Ireland. And they've gone everywhere in Europe they could passport, right? And they've just kind of not been as interested in the UK. So there's got to be some Brexit implications there that are already impacting us. Uh, So so it's an interesting point. All of these uh, banks in the US that are moving so slowly are going to have a rude awakening pretty soon because, you know, across the the Atlantic is is marching these, uh, you know, uh, real innovation. I mean, I I don't know what, what to say about it other than, you know, 
oh well (laughs) (laughs) time to wake up yeah it's one of those things though where there's there's a saying that we use a lot with our clients which is steal with pride N26 are doing great things steal the things that they're doing and and by that I don't mean actually steal intellectual property but take the ideas take some of the concepts you can learn so much from what they're doing and and I do think going back to that Lloyd story earlier there's a little bit of what they put out is like oh we have learned from challenges I think that was an interesting point to make but have they versus you know like really understanding that that having your own infrastructure and, and operating its own IT systems versus outsourcing their IT systems to create cost reductions the difference in those two approaches is phenomenal whether you see IT as a commodity or you see it as a competitive advantage is the real difference between do you get it or not agreed and they are doing great things they are doing them really well i mean that um integrated insurance journey is like super slick it's so i mean i was i was looking at it it's on the pulse important. and and it the was pulse that sounds like a radio so station I, what is it what there is, is it called? such a big is plug on, coming soon on pulse 11 fs pulse yeah 11 11 F- F- sorry on 11 fs pulse not the pulse and i was just blown away and you know the ui is slick it looks so great I'm going to just start rambling because I love them and I want an account. So Guys, call me. Hello. Come to the UK. So, but they are, <laughs> they are doing lots of things very well. Is it fair to say, and you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to rain on this loving. One thing they're not doing particularly well in Germany, at least is branding. So uh, branding for who? Um, so um, c- the current branding, I don't, I don't know how the stat comes about, only reaches 2 to 5% of the German public. They need to become more widely known. So uh, I think there's a bit of a challenge of like, if you don't have high street banking presence, if you don't have that brand in the high street, actually you're at a bit of a disadvantage. But I don't know. It, there's, there's something missing here. I don't know if they've figured out viral growth versus market entry. Also, I think because you don't have the same rhetoric as you have in somewhere like the UK in terms of the challenges versus the incumbents. You know, In the UK, it's 90% uh, belonging to the big five banks. Uh, in Germany, because the banking system is, is very decentralized, the big... F- the biggest um, four banks have less than 10% between them. So you can't really call them the big four banks. Um, So it's a totally different type of discussion. They're not seen as a challenger. They're just seen as a a different type of bank. We have the same thing in in the US. And I think that that's actually been why um, we've seen uh, a a slow... Uh, growth of, of any sort of real technology challenger banks. It's because, you know, if you don't like one of the big players, you can just go bank with a, a credit union or uh, or your local corner bank. It's a, you know, it's a that's an option for you. Um, I don't know if they're still um, using this campaign, but I saw a while back on Twitter and they've got this hashtag, hashtag no bullshit or hashtag and excuse my German, aber ohne bullshit. And so it's been in um, the U-Bahn and in various places, and they're they're really trying to push the fact that, like, if you're sick of slow-moving banks and you don't want to deal with this anymore, come to us. I think that's great. But I also think, you know, going back to the, the point about the U.S., I mean, there you've got, you know, over 7,000 banks and lending institutions. In Germany, you've got over 2,000. In the U.K., you have over 300. So the numbers are just totally, totally different. For not dissimilar um, populations between Germany and the U.K., Germany's, what, 70, 80, 90 million. The U.K. is about 65, 70 million. So the, the gulf between 300 banks and 
uh, in 2000. And then also you've got the kind of of those 300 banks, 90% of the customers are with five. It's a very, very concentrated banking market. Whereas, uh, But I think the opportunities that you then have, given there are so many small banks around, it means people maybe in that market are more likely to switch. Maybe you can create that next challenger brand. It's not necessarily a bad thing that you're not in a concentrated banking market. And to sort of resurrect, I guess, the love-in element, if, if they've got branding that's only hitting 2 to 5% of the German public and yet they're hitting the growth numbers that they're hitting, that, I mean, that's still super There's impressive, right? There's room for growth, yeah. Um, picking up on Nina's German, I'm open to doing more bilingual podcasts. I think that's a nice way to go. Yeah, I think um, we should get that in there. Anyone that has been super turned on by a chat about N26. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Just me. You it's let the just guy me. host one time. It's literally just me. <laughs> I thought I I'm sorry I I thought there was more than just Nina um, just me alone with my N26 card anyone who wants to find out more about N26 we have multiple user journeys from N26 German offering in our competitive insights platform 11FS Pulse on-demand video of the best digital banking journeys on the planet go to 11fspulse.com to find out more do it now now Next up, so while fintechs are often aimed at the younger generations, this app is taking that one step further. Go Henry teaches your kids how to save money because you suck at it. The app comes with a Visa card available to kids age six plus, and parents retain total control over the card. They can even decide where the children are allowed to use it. Interestingly, I quite like this, kids can also earn money for chores from within the app. Love that. I think it's awesome. So, what do we think? Is this a good idea? Like, how does it compare with other products such as like Diggy Piggy or Danske Bank's Pocket Money or even US program ChoreCheck? Doug, what do you think? Yeah, um, ChoreCheck in the US is doing pretty well. They've um, they've built the actual chore management into into the uh, into the app, and so parents chore can... chore management. Yeah. Wow, oh, those sound like the most fun parents ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's great about ChoreCheck is that if you if you look at it and you've you've completed your your chores, it shows how much you've earned. If you if you missed completing a chore, it show it shows how much you you missed earning, and it actually adds up. It's like you could have earned this much. If uh, I really hope my girlfriend isn't listening, this doesn't seem like it's just for parents <laughs> and the, kids. The honeydew card. So you don't have stars on your fridge like I did. No. <laughs> Val. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously being Danish, uh, I'm a big fan of, of Dance Bank and the Pocket Money um, app. I think what was interesting was, um, so if you look at um, in Denmark, the average that parents give their kids a month is about £15 uh, in terms of pocket money. In the UK, it's between sort of £5.75 to about £6.50 a week. So actually British kids are better off by about, you know, an extra £7 or something a month. Um but yeah, I mean, I think what was also interesting was that a third of parents said that they think the best age um, for kids to become financially independent is 22 years old, which I just felt was so old. I mean, but after... I'm, I'm, yeah. Am I the only one that finds it weird, like this idea of a kid, like, what are we talking, six plus? Like walking into a shop and picking out their sweeties and then handing a debit card to the... I like that. I yeah. I love this. I think it's fantastic. Um so actually, I'm maybe I'm a little bit biased because Go Henry is one of our partners on Bud, and we're really excited to have plug, them. Plug, 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 plug. plug, plug but I we're say very that excited. having done that ourselves a bunch. But <laughs> we're so excited to have them on board, and you know, there's so many out there, including Current in the states as well. I think they're based in New York. Go Osper, Rooster Money, that are all trying to do the same thing, which is help with financial literacy. And Absolutely, and this I know, is so key from an early age, right? Oh my goodness, yeah, I. I have my own problems with financial management, and there's a reason why. What there's about so chore management? 
chore management, I'm okay. I do the washing up. But, you know, there's so many PFMs out there. And why are there so many? Why do we all have such an issue with money? What if we tackle it at a younger age? So there are so many banks that have the send some of our employees into a school initiative going on. But actually, there are so few banks that have product offerings that teach people about financial literacy and financially include a generation of people that can't buy things online or through their mobile phone. And I think that... Is customer acquisition. We said this when we covered um, Danske Bank's pocket money and DigiPiggy, which is still a f- great word to say. Uh, <laughs> DigiPiggy. I'm thinking about uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. For anybody who gets that reference, I'm maybe, w- way, maybe dating myself a bit there. Sorry, I Petra, so Petra, from Petra, the, no uh, idea. the um, blank faces staring back at you in the room. Um, but the, Doug, tell me you get me. Thank you, man. You're making me feel better. But this customer acquisition strategy, get people while they're young and add value to their lives. People don't switch banks very often. Let's take advantage of that. Let's grow a generation of customers and do something socially responsible. I'm surprised we're not seeing thousands of Me Too versions of this from every bank. This is this is the ultimate no-brainer. And they're charging, what, like two ninety nine a month? That's like nothing my goodness i would pay that 10 times over really because i don't know i can barely handle my own finances i am terrified for the day when i have a child and i'm like oh my god and this is what an apr is and i don't know run away mommy's crying with bottle of wine <sighs> i so i came across um a very fun fact when i um looked into this actual story so um it's called go henry because the first transaction was made by a kid called henry Oh, I thought it great. had something to do with Henry VIII. Okay. Oh. Go Henry. Well done, Henry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah That's you great can story. picture them all in the office when the transaction works and they were like, <laughs> Go Henry! And then someone was like, Hang on. How good is this? I mean, and they were probably also counting their lucky stars that he had like a really easy name to say, like Henry, and not like some really complex name. <laughs> You know, uh, both both current and uh, and Chorchek in in the states have a, an interesting play. It's basically they have uh, spend, save, and give, um, which is function. which is really cool. And I don't know if they I don't know who came first with the spend, save, and give, but they both have it. And the give part is uh, is basically that they can they can take a part of their money and and dedicate it to uh, a certain charity. And uh, both both companies have a, a direct hook to the charitable giving aspect. So it's kind of a nice uh, extra socially aware thing that you can do for kids awesome and it's actually quite a nice segue into our next story no i'm just gonna say did you piggy again <laughs> did you piggy six times fast uh, did you piggy 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 one take taylor nearly struck again i think you did that's just cost you a nickname it sounds like a pokemon evolution i'm not gonna lie yeah it kind of did i was willing that pokemon to evolve so it actually was a nice segue from our previous story. Um, Amsterdam introduces contactless payment jackets for beggars. So this actually touches on a story that we talked about on the news show last week around um, a big issue seller used a contactless card reader to boost his sales. Um, this particular product is a jacket that has a card reader sewn into it. And people who want to donate just hold their card over the jacket for a couple of seconds and make a contactless payment. Um, 
What do we think of this, guys? So, can I just add, the fixed sum one euro goes into a bank account managed by a homeless shelter and can only be used to purchase a hot meal, pay for a bath, or spend a night at a homeless shelter. So I think that's that's kind of a crucial detail here is that um, the, the advice I've often been given by um, charities that look after the homeless or people who sleep rough is to not give them money but to try and help them in other ways. Uh, and I think this kind of speaks to that. And the interesting thing about a contactless card is are you taking somebody out of their dignity when you're doing this or are you actually doing the right thing for them because we all want to see see people help and then are you just sending them out onto the street to basically hold out their arms to be like you know you have to touch me in order for me to sleep well tonight it's uh, it's an odd odd thing to manage with i i want to see this jacket does it have a picture of the jacket somewhere I mean, I do really like this, though, because I think there's so many times when I walk through the station or I walk down the road and I don't have any cash on me and then I feel really bad, especially, you know, given the weather that we've been having in London in the last uh, the last week. Um, so I think it's a really, really good initiative. And maybe there could be something, you know, talking about Square earlier from a kind of CSR initiative perspective. There could be something where perhaps they were to gift uh, you know, a couple hundred or a couple thousand of their uh, contactless payment machines, um, you know, to uh, something like the Big Issue Foundation or Shelter, uh, because uh, I think that would just create such a, a useful link and it would it really bring this to... So this is so good, Val, because you, you, you have touched on a similar suggestion that came up when we did the similar story on the show last week. Um, and we talked actually about Square maybe um, as part of coming into the UK, giving out these free contactless readers branded. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think this from a, a, a sort of, I guess, a donator point of view addresses a couple of issues. Nobody is cash anymore. So I can't donate if I want to. And secondly, I think people tend to have concerns about if I do give cash, is this money going to be used in the right way? Um, and, you know, so actually this may encourage more donations because it gives people peace of mind. I take issue with this um, for maybe a more kind of, are we are we perpetuating the cycle of, of having homelessness and rough sleepers out on the streets by saying, here, just have this cool contactless thing? Whereas, um, I'm, I obviously, I don't live in Amsterdam, so I don't know how it works, but in the UK, we've got the big issue, which kind of, motivates those that are homeless to kind of get up and, and do something and, and sell and um, have something to do each day. Um, I know that MasterCard was working with um, a charity called Change Please, where they train um, those who are homeless to become baristas with these little vans that they drive around. And so that they're able to learn a new skill and kind of get a job and be employable again. And so I think I'm, I'm on the fence. I think it's great because we are moving towards cashless societies, but at the same time, are we perpetuating it? Well, and if cash comes out of the economy, there has to be still a way to donate. And I think generally the charity donation through contactless is something I've started to see a lot, lot more of. And and it, this is just a this is a good news story. It's an opportunity for PR, but are we doing it with the right dignity and, and without being patronizing? I is think it it's, patronizing? A, it's a difficult line to try. Is it nanny statism? Um, Nina, to pick up on your point, I think we talked about some of the other sort of benefits of this, like a night at a homeless shelter. There does seem to also be a sort of self-improvement element, which is um, these guys get the option to also use that towards certification courses. Um, oh, awesome. Or, Missed so. that part. Yeah, so that's great. But definitely a big up to all the charities that are moving towards having those contactless options, as you said in last week, um, last week's episode, where, you know, if you can buy your poppy now with contactless or donate to Cancer Research UK with your card and just tap it, 
awesome. I love that because we all want to be able to give. And Agreed. And we never have cash. Us, yeah. This is just giving us more We options. live in a fintech bubble in an urban <laughs> center. Why would I ever have cash? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Okay, and our and finally this week comes from The Verge and is my absolute favorite story probably ever. 50 Cent admits in bankruptcy document that he never actually owned any Bitcoin. So this comes off the back of everybody saying that he made $8 million by accepting the cryptocurrency as a form of payment for his album Animal Ambition back in 2014, because that was a cool album name in 2014. Um, he said he only went along with it because he never turns down press coverage unless it, in quotes, causes irreparable damage to my brand. He had previously tweeted about his Bitcoin wealth, but has now had to prove to courts that he actually doesn't have any Bitcoin. Where are we on this, apart from the fact it's hilarious? It's hilarious. Um, he had to reveal that he does not own any Bitcoin. How did he reveal that he doesn't own any Bitcoin? Because in theory, he could have a USB key somewhere with a bunch of Bitcoin on it, and nobody would be any the wiser. So it, it's kind of, that's an interesting question. Uh, and also, this comes on the back of the fact that the um, Inland Revenue Service in the US have started tapping up Coinbase customers. So Coinbase being one of the major exchanges where you or I would take our, our pounds or our dollars and we would get Bitcoins in return. If you have an account there, Coinbase now have to report people who have a holding above a certain amount, which would make them subject to tax. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just, it was very convenient. It's like, no, no, I've gone bankrupt, so I don't have any money and I can't repay any of my debts. And then it's like, oh, but you've got $8 million of Bitcoin. And then it's like, oh, no, actually, I don't have $8 million of Bitcoin. It was just like, I mean, I think, you know, whether he did or he didn't, but it's just, it just seemed uh, very convenient that suddenly he, did, he was no longer a Bitcoin millionaire. It's interesting to me as well that in the same week, um, we covered this on uh, Blockchain Insider that came out on Thursday on, on iTunes Now, uh, cheap plug. Um, the, the famous um, creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi, um, there's, a, there's a chap, uh, Craig Wright, who claims to be Satoshi, but actually uh, he seems to have found himself embroiled in a $10 billion lawsuit in the US where people are saying, uh, actually, Satoshi was many people and one of those people died in 2013 and you owe the family's estate to Ten billion dollars. So um, certainly, litigation. Bitcoin was always intended to around being anonymous, but the people who hold a lot of Bitcoin seem to be dealing with the law a lot. So it hasn't succeeded in its intended purpose. But actually, the inverse is also true. If it if it is becoming more legitimate and you can start to sue people, is it that anonymous? It's an interesting question. I love this meme from Twitter as well. He should change his name instead of fifty cent. He's not point not 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 nine five Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I thought this was funny, but also to put a positive spin on it, I think, you know, we've talked about celebrities endorsing ICOs and all that. And it has to stop. Uh, well, first of all, it has to stop, but it's kind of funny still. But for this, it's like, okay, so is is Bitcoin like, how, oh, have we made it? Are we there? Is it mainstream? Is blockchain, uh, blockchain, is blockchain, not blockchain, blockchain. <laughs> Are you hungry? Chain. I'm obviously very hungry. Is hungry. <laughs> I can't speak anymore. This mojito really did me in. Um, is blockchain mainstream now? Yeah. Um, and that excites me because, you know, we in our bubble are like, blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Now, so it's mainstream. Is it mainstream now? Can we talk about it like at dinner parties now? Well, I think when <laughs> banks are saying, hey, this could be a risk to our business and briefing that way, I think it is. Uh, it's it's real and it's it's there. And I noticed it when the price really 
spiked in November, December last year. People that I hadn't seen since high school were coming up to me like, where do I buy one of those, whatever they're called? And like, it's like, what What do you mean? You know, one of them coin bits thing. So, uh, yeah. It's really odd. So I think it has gone mainstream. But we we also had um, DJ Khaled and Ghostface Killer. What is it with hip hop artists and being involved with cryptocurrency in some dodgy way? What about way? Steven Seagal? Steven Seagal last week. Bitcoin now is two eyes. I, I just with all these tax problems, I guess Fiddy needs to get bits or die trying. And now the course oh, of twenty one no. questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laura loves a grony joke. Producer Laura is nodding knowingly. <laughs> I see. I passed it off to Laura again, but she does write the show notes. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna reiterate Sarah's point from After Dark. You can't throw them at her when they bomb and take credit when they absolutely fly. Laura does write all the little segues that sometimes go really, really, really well. Laura's really funny. Laura's amazing. I like her a lot. Laura also has like a cocktail thing in her cocktail bike, umbrella. In a cocktail her hair. umbrella by her ear. She looks fab. Send her an email. Laura11fs.com. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her you love the segues. And emojis. She loves emojis. Because she needs more emails in her life. (laughs) And on that note, this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Nina? Um, You can find me on Twitter at Nina Mohanty or Nina at thisisbud.com. Awesome. Doug? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, Doug at Doug Bobbinhouse uh, or also Doug at 11FS. Valentina. Uh, well, if you're a business uh, looking for a loan of half a million up to 30 million, you can visit us at uh, w.oaknorth.com. Or if you want to connect with me directly, then you can find me on Twitter at Val Christensen or LinkedIn. Lovely. Simon. At SY Taylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Super. Or on Blockchain Insider every week, which is on iTunes now. But only if you give five stars. Uh, but also only if you give five stars. And check out InsureTech Insider, which is also on iTunes now. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at RossGallagher07, or please do email me, RossGur, at 11FS.com. Wow, is that an actual email address? RossGUH at 11FS.com. It is if you didn't like my first pass at presenting. (laughs) We loved your first pass. He did a great job. Well done, Ross. Can we give Ross a Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Do not edit that out, Michael Bailey. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Beautiful. That was Thank beautiful. you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, God. Not only do you get a trophy today, you get, to, you get all the things. A trophy. I actually got another one.